A man is left for dead in a ditch. A priest passes by on the other side. A Levite also passes by. But the most unlikely character of all, a Samaritan, cleans and bandages the man's wounds, provides for his medical bills, and ensures that he will be cared for. Jesus names all three characters. Priest, Levite, Samaritan. But when he asked the lawyer who was a neighbor to the injured man, the lawyer doesn't say the Samaritan. He only says the one who showed him mercy. The lawyer could not bring himself to say the word Samaritan. His gotcha question had already backfired, but this would have been too much. Losing an argument to Jesus is one thing a lot of people do. That's how I got here. <laughs> no, you don't want me to do that. Yeah, I want you to do that. No, you don't want me to do that. Okay, I'll do it. Well, dignifying your enemy is another thing entirely. Consider how this subtle slight may stand out more if we imagine this part of the parable as a multiple-choice quiz. Jesus gives the lawyer three options to answer the question, and who is my neighbor? A, the priest. B, the Levite. C, the Samaritan, except for the lawyer takes out his number two pencil and scratches out Samaritan and writes underneath the one who showed him mercy. The lawyer just cannot do it. He cannot muster the will to identify the Samaritan as the true neighbor in the story. I think we've all become acquainted, even if we don't have a category or a term for it, with the phenomenon of belief perseverance. This is... Uh, this is the maintaining of a belief despite new information that firmly contradicts it. You ever had an argument with a family member or a friend about something? Probably politics. You can tell them next time, man, you're suffering from belief perseverance. Go Google it. I just told you the facts, and you still believe the other thing. But could we kindly give the lawyer a little credit? At least he didn't scratch out Samaritan and write traitor. He's actually being quite a gentleman to say the man who showed him mercy. We're talking about a Samaritan here. You know about Samaritans? Who are the Samaritans? For ancient Jews, Samaritans were both neighbors and enemies, which is one of the worst kinds of enemies they're always around. If you were a Jew living in the year 30 AD, you'd think of the Samaritans of probably practitioners of this kind of counterfeit religion. Samaritans claimed to be the true heirs of Abraham. They elevated Mount Gerizim, uh, the sacred importance of Mount Gerizim, over Mount Moriah. That's where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. 
You may remember the Samaritan king from your Bible drills as a kid, Ahab, Jezebel's husband. He erected an altar to a Canaanite god right there in Samaria. Jews associated Samaritans more with remedial religion at best and oppression at worst. Uh, Speaking of remedial, I remember the dean of of Duke Divinity School at my opening convocation welcoming UNC graduates who had enrolled in the the MDiv program as uh, remedial students, and I was deeply offended. (laughs) Old Testament stories of Samaritan origins associate them also with the worst. Just the worst. Rapists, murderers, you can look it up. What's more, even the disciples have no patience for them. Funny little story. In the previous chapter to our text for today, the disciples are going through Samaria to kind of prep the place for a visit from Jesus, but they're not having, they're not welcoming them. And Jesus gets there and they complain and and then they say to Jesus, Do you want us to just rain down fire from heaven on on these people? And Jesus rebukes them, thankfully. But that's, that's the kind of people these are. That's the kind of relationship we have between Jews and Samaritans. Things have not been going well for centuries. The popular version of the parable of the Good Samaritan doesn't have the original punch. If we read this only as a lesson in charity, as helping others in distress, or simply showing compassion to a stranger, we've missed the reason why the lawyer is still gritting his teeth at the end of it. This is not a a happy conclusion for the lawyer. Jesus builds attention from the beginning. That's what makes the parable so much fun. We're immediately drawn into a dramatic encounter from the first line. A person, could be anyone, could be you, on a regular day trip is beaten, robbed, within an inch of her life, left in a ditch, couldn't get any lower. We already have compassion for him, all of us. We, who, who wouldn't help this innocent person? Who wouldn't be a neighbor to this hurting, suffering person? Here comes the priest. Well, oh, thank God, he's coming. For Israelites, the priests were the good guys, just like they are for us, I think. Yeah. This wasn't even a high priest. This is just a regular priest. You might, you might think of uh, just a modern-day version of your kindly local pastor. Or a firefighter, or a doctor, or a nurse. But the priest passes by. Tension builds. Well, I thought surely he would have stopped. Maybe the next guy will stop. Well, here comes another good guy, a Levite. Levites are named Levites after Levi, the third son of Jacob. This is the son of Jacob. He's not going to pass by. Here he comes. Thank God this guy in the ditch has a Savior. Will he or won't he stop? 
the tension builds. Here he is. You just see him coming over the horizon or around the corner, 50 yards away, 25 yards away, 10 yards away, and then he passes by. Tension builds. And now a third man is approaching. I know what this Jesus is doing now. He always does this with these parables. He's telling another one of these tricky stories where you think the obvious at first. I bet this next guy is just going to be one of us, one of just a regular guy. He's not ordained. He's not related to anybody special. He's just one of us. He's a good salt-of-the-earth person. He's going to come, and he's going to help this guy. And that will make it interesting because we all thought the one coming to save the person would be someone we expected anyway. We're squinting our eyes again, 50 yards down the line, and closing. Must be an everyday Israelite. And then 25 yards, and then 10. Who is this? And Jesus says, a Samaritan. The Samaritan. He's the one who comes near the injured one. Not the priest, not the Levite, not even an Israelite. And he's the one who is moved with pity. He pours oil and water on his wounds. That's the way they sterilized wounds back in those days. He bandages them. He drapes them over his mule. He brings them to an inn. He spends the night tending to him. He gives an innkeeper two days' wages to take care of him. And then he promises that he'll come back and pay the innkeeper anything he, any extra expenses he incurred while he was caring for the injured man. And at this point, you just have to hear Jesus really piling it on the lawyer. <laughs> the Samaritan, the most odious neighbor, the one to whom we associate all the bad and wrong ways of living. The historic enemy, the last person to come down the road and the very last person you'd expect to help is neighbor. The parable of the Good Samaritan has such a devastating ending. I remember my friend Nelson Johnson shared stories with you about him before. A great pastor in Greensboro, uh, still pastoring, still leading, still getting into good trouble. Uh, he, he was once called the most dangerous man in Greensboro. He was black. People calling him that were white. In fact, the person who nicknamed him that was the mayor of Greensboro. Anyway, uh, around the time in 1985, 1986, the Klan, Klan that were living for more of the rural areas around Greensboro, had, had promised to come to Greensboro and do a march, this kind of rally, and they were going to bring all their stuff, all their guns and everything, all their racism. And uh, Nelson caught word of it, and he, uh, he decided he was going to go to the Klan leader's house and try to get him to stop. He changed his mind, don't come, don't bring the parade. So, so Nelson goes to this guy's house, and he's driving up this dirt road, uh, and there are signs, keep out, you know, beware of the dog, you'll be shot. 
you know, all the kind of signs that one has on their driveway. <laughs> and uh, he gets up to the house and nobody's home. Knocks on the door, nobody's coming. So Nelson, he goes around to the back of the house uh, and writes a note and leaves it on the sliding glass door. Please give me a call, Nelson Johnson. Now they knew who Nelson was. Remember, the most dangerous man in Greensboro? Anyway, the guy gets home and, and he's just cussing and spitting up a storm. This man was on my property. This man was at my house. He's, he's telling me where to meet and what, who to call. But he called him. You know, they went and they had a conversation. They met at some gas station, went down the road to a hotel, and the Klansmen had Nelson surrounded. But they had a conversation right near a window in, the court, in a, a room that was facing the courtyard of a motel, and Nelson convinced them not to come and do the march in Greensboro. Fascinating. Anyway, come to find out that the whole conversation happened while Nelson was in the crosshairs of a rifle from another hotel room across the courtyard. But I wonder, if we ask the Klansmen, who is your neighbor? I wonder what the Klansmen would say. He might just grit his teeth and say, the one who showed me mercy I'm kind of glad, though, that the lawyer gritted his teeth and he didn't say the Samaritan. Because by saying what he said, he opens up the whole parable. And I believe he gives us a new kind of answer that we don't always associate with the ending of the parable. Who is my neighbor? The one who showed him mercy? Well, I feel like that works best today for me to fill in the name Jesus. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm the character in the story who's in the ditch. I'm in the ditch for all sorts of reasons. Primarily, I'm in the ditch because I'm a sinner. Uh, and I've been injured by life and sin and my own prejudices and my own arrogance and my own pride. And most of the time in my life, I don't think I need that much help, do you? But I find that the neighbor's final answer actually helps me see who the one coming to help me really is. Because I've been hostile to the one coming to save me. Have you ever thought of Jesus as your enemy? Have you ever thought of the ways that, that we've been hostile to him, the ways we've rejected him, the ways that we have turned away from him all across our life, and the ways that such turning away from him has left us in so much need of salvation? I want to say each of us find ourselves in the ditch sometimes. 
And we need saving. But the one who finally comes to us is the one who was despised and rejected, was he not? Ignored and abandoned, crucified and dispatched. He's the one that comes to our aid, who anoints us with oil and pours out the wine of his own blood onto our wounds and binds up the brokenhearted. That's you and me. He's the one who lifts up our hearts. The one upon we may the one upon whom we may cast all our cares. He's the one who pays the price for us, the one who will not let our foot be moved, the one who will neither slumber nor sleep to keep us. He's the one who keeps Israel. He keeps us. This one the world rejects, whether by intention or by ignorance, this Jesus, this one who tells the tale today, the one who's reaching his hand out to us. Who, Jesus asks, who is the one who is the neighbor to this person? The one who showed him mercy, the lawyer says. Now, I picked on him at first, but he was right. 